Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, by now, like I said before we started our recording, this section of Scripture is probably so familiar to most of us that we may assume there's nothing for us to learn from it. We'd be wrong. First off, what I want you to do is look at how often in these few verses, Matthew goes into detail to clearly point out that Jesus' birth was of a supernatural origin and was not accomplished by human means. Look at verse 18. He says, before they came together. And that means before Joseph and Mary had sexual relations. They were engaged. You hopefully understand this. Back in those days, the the engagement was was a legally binding thing to the point that if you broke the engagement, you had to have a divorce proceedings go on to break the engagement. But at the same time, during the engagement, they did not have sexual relations anyway. That was part of how it worked. It wasn't until the actual marriage ceremony that the consummation of the marriage actually happened in the Jewish custom. And so they, had, they were betrothed and they were engaged, but before they had had any sexual relations. The scripture is very clear that when Jesus was born, Joseph had nothing to do with it. But he's not just there. Look also in verse 18. It then goes on and says, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So again, before they came together sexually, and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. and then goes on and says, to, the angel tells to Joseph, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And down in verse 25, it says again, But he, Joseph, did not know her. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And as you know from the scriptures, that term knowing someone is a term for sexual relations again. He had no sexual relationship with her. Even though he took her to be his wife and he brought her into his home, he had no sexual relationship with her until after she had given birth to Jesus. So the scriptures are going out of their way to clearly show us just in these few verses that this child isn't from Joseph and Mary. It's from God through the Holy Spirit. Now, the supernatural birth, the supernatural birth had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Go with me now to Isaiah chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. All right. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, to make sure you're still with us here and you're up to speed, who's the king of Judah? No. Ahaz. Look closely. Ahaz is the son. The way that they're wording it makes it a little tricky, so I want to make sure you stick track with me here. Ahaz, the king of Judah, he's the son of Jotham, who is the son of Uzziah. 
they just told him who his dad and his grandfather was. But Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time. All right, and now we have Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, which is the son of Remaliah. But Pekah is the king of Israel. So what's happened now is the king of Syria and the king of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Remember, the nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom called Israel. When Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom goes in partnership with the king of Syria to come and attack the southern kingdom. So it already shows we've got a bad time and the family's fighting against themselves and the northern kingdom's using some help from Syria to come against it. So they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they couldn't yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, that's Judah, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim's another term for Israel, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherb Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway at, to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, Ahaz, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us consider it, conquer it for ourselves, and to set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you, are not, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, before I go on further now, let me just catch you up and make sure you're with us here. The king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom Israel, or also Ephraim, come in partnership to come down against Ahaz, and the, who's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Ahaz is freaking out. God sends Isaiah with his son, Shir Jashub, to go to meet them and to give them a word from God. He says, relax. Don't be afraid. Trust God. Be still. These two guys, they look scary, but their time's running out. They're smoldering stumps of firebrands, and their, their time's about to come to an end. And actually, in 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel won't even exist. You remember in our study of Ezekiel, the Assyrians came and took them off before they came and took, took away Judah at some point. So he says to him, relax, you're going to be fine. God says so, just if you're not firm in faith though, you won't be firm at all. So now, verse 10, again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, God comes through Isaiah to the king Ahaz, says, relax, I know it looks like these two nations are coming against you and they, they've already planned on who's going to be the next king in Judah. Ahaz, relax, God's made you a promise, you're going to be fine. These two guys aren't going to be able to harm you. And then God says, by the way, if you're really not sure of what I've just said, 
ask for a sign of any kind that what I'm saying to you is true. And Ahaz looks spiritual, doesn't he? Oh, I'm not going to put God to a test. Was God happy with his response or was God angry with his response? He was angry with his response. You know why? Because here's a man who won't trust God, but he's acting all spiritual. Oh, I won't put you to a test. Um, then why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust me? And so God says, I'll tell you what, since you won't ask for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. Now, this gets pretty cool if you'll stick with me here. God says, here's the sign I'm going to give to you that you're going to be fine. A virgin is going to give birth to a son and is going to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us, as we know from Matthew. And then he says, before this child grows to a certain age, the lands that you're worried about are going to be deserted. All right, that's the sign from God. Now, keep in mind, this is the prophecy that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says was and is referring to Jesus. There's been a lot of debate over the years as to, is it talking about Jesus? Or is it talking about Isaiah's son? Or is it talking about somebody else's son? There's all this confusion. And as I wrestled over this passage, God gave me some pretty cool insight, and I can't wait to share it with you. How would Jesus' birth, hundreds of years later, be assigned to Ahaz and to Judah as they feared being destroyed as a people by Syria and Ephraim. Again, keep this in mind. Matthew tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew quotes from this passage and says, that is referring to Jesus. All right? So now there's no question as to who this child is that the prophecy is talking about. Is it talking about Isaiah's son? Is it talking about anybody else's son? It's only talking about Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a second. All right, so God says to him, you want a sign, Judah? I'm going to give you a sign. There's going to be a virgin that gives birth, and you're going to be able to call his name Emmanuel. And before this child grows to a certain age, the people that you're worried about won't even exist anymore. The land, well, they will still exist, but the land will be deserted. So how is Jesus' birth, which we know now from history, hundreds of years later, a sign to Judah? It's kind of, kind of crazy, isn't it? How's that a sign to them? That he's going to do what he said. Well, first off, the word you in Isaiah 14 is referring not just to Ahaz. It's in the plural. It's referring to the whole people of Judah, the house of David, if you will. All right. So when it says you there in uh, Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's talking about the people of Judah. So also, if God is promising the tribe of Judah that he will give them a sign of a virgin giving birth to a son, who is God with us, then this is a promise that the people of Judah must continue, continue until that sign is seen. Don't miss that part. He's saying, you want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to, Judah, you're going to see a virgin give birth to a son. And he's going to be God with us. In other words, God said, Judah, you will still be around. When this virgin gives birth to a son, you want a sign that I'm going to take care of you and that you're going to exist and that these people aren't going to win against you. Here's your sign. You wait and watch for the day in which you, Judah, see a virgin give birth to a baby and it'll be a son and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. That's your sign. All right. Now, some of you are starting to catch it. Some of you aren't. 
How is that a sign? How is that a promise? Well, what he's saying to them is, if you believe God, Israel, or not Israel, but Judah will continue to exist until they, at least until they see that sign, correct? The best way I can explain it to you is to take you to Acts 27. Go to Acts 27 and look at verses 13 through 26. In Acts 27, look at verses 13 through 26. It says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along, the, along Crete close to the shore. But soon a temp tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and then fearing that they would run aground on, the, on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar." And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now, those of you who know this story, Paul's a prisoner being taken to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. He's going to go through all this stuff. As they get on this ship, he's one of the prisoners on the ship. He even tells them, look, now's not a good time to sail. But the sailors even said, no, 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 I think we know what we're doing better than you, Paul. Shut up, and we're going to sail anyway. And then they get into this hurricane, this nor'easter. They, they, they're just getting just totally beat to death. They throw their food all over. They throw the cargo over. They're just trying to stay alive. And Paul gets up and he says, look, I just had an angel of the Lord come and appear to me, and he made a promise. And the promise is, is that I will stand before Caesar. And on top of that, he told me, no one on the ship will be killed. They'll all be spared. If you stay with the ship, you'll be spared. Now, it's going to happen because God said so. And I'm, but we must run aground on some island. Now, if you know what happens next, go to chapter 28. Look at verses 1 through 5. After we were brought safely through, this is after the shipwreck, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. It didn't just bite him. It sat there pretty much and drained his fluid, if you will. All right. It fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. By the way, does it appear that Paul freaked out when the snake bit him? Looks like he just went, <laughs> shook it off. How come Paul didn't go, ah, now I'm going to die? 
God had given him a promise that he would go to Caesar. So most of us would go, I thought I was going to Rome. I guess I'm not going to go to Rome now. No, God said I'm going to Rome, even though this looks like it's going to kill me and would normally kill a person. It ain't going to kill me because God said I'm going to Rome. So even though this looks like it ain't good, I'm going to believe what God has said. You, you with me? Oh, by the way, when Satan comes after you and tries to get you to doubt God's promises, you just need to shake him off into the fire. When the serpent tries to bite you and make you doubt what God has said, just shake him off into the fire and believe what God said. Paul had been given a promise that he would see Caesar, correct? That meant that no matter what happened next, he would see Caesar. God said to Judah, you want proof? You want a sign that you're going to be okay? Judah, I'm going to give you a sign. You are going to see, Judah, you are going to see a virgin give birth to a son. That's going to be a miraculous thing that you're going to see. A virgin give birth to a son. And you're going to name him Emmanuel, which is God with us. This is your sign. In other words, Judah, it doesn't matter what happens between now and when you actually see Caesar, if you will. No matter what happens between now and then, here is my promise to you. You're going to see this virgin give birth to a son. Therefore, Judah must still exist at least until they see the promise that God gave. You understand? That's the sign for Judah. As you know. The promise, prophecy is true. Those nations weren't able to attack. But later on, doesn't Nebuchadnezzar come and take Judah away and all that? And they go through all their stuff. But God made a promise that Judah would still exist as a people, at least until they saw this miraculous birth. All right. So how is this a sign? Because no matter what happened, God said they would see it. Now, some people, unfortunately, if you do any study on Isaiah 7, 14, some people try to say that the Hebrew word translated virgin in Isaiah 7, 14 could simply just mean a young maiden. That's what they try to say. You, you, you do some research and you'll find, they'll say that word actually could just simply mean a young maiden. It doesn't have to mean a virgin. Well, let me just show you from Scripture and from other examples. I'm going to blow that up tonight. And hopefully, you'll, by the time we get to our fourth or fifth example of why we can blow it up, you'll have it settled in your heart. First off... This same word that's translated virgin in our Bibles in Isaiah 7:14 is clearly referring to a virgin in other places in the Bible. The exact same word. Go to Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis 24, look at verses 42 through 44. says, I came today to the spring and I said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, this is the servant of, uh, of, uh, of Isaac, all right, or servant of Abraham. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master, if now you are pr prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water for your, from your drawer to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. By the way, we know who that girl is, right? It's Rebecca. It's Rebecca. But he says, may the virgin that comes out to draw water 
It clearly means virgin. Same word translated virgin in Isaiah 7.14. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, look at verses 18 and 19. In Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19, it says, Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Again, that same word is referred to, used here in Isaiah 7, 14, it means virgin. In Song of Solomon, in Song of Solomon chapter 1, go to chapter Song of Solomon, you're there in Proverbs, go to Ecclesiastes and then Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter 1, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, and your name is oil poured out. Therefore the virgins love you, Go to verses six and six, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Go to chapter 6 of, I, of Song of Solomon. Look at verse 8. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Here are just a few of the places that that same word is clearly translated virgins. Now, some of you would say, yeah, but it also could still mean young maiden. Okay, I'll give you that, but stick with me. I'm going to win. All right. The second thing I want to show you is this. The Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. Back in the time when the Greek, Greek language was prevalent, scholars, Jewish scholars, who knew the Greek, went and took the Hebrew and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into what we now know as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Septuagint translated the word in Isaiah 7:14, the Hebrew word that some people say could mean maiden. It doesn't mean that she had to be a virgin. It could just mean a young maiden, a girl of marrying age. The Hebrew scholars translated that word virgin in the Septuagint. Some of you say, okay, okay, so yeah, that word's virgin in a lot of places in the Bible. And yeah, the Septuagint translators translated it virgin, but that's no proof. They could have been wrong. I mean, there's humans involved here. All right, well, I'll give you that, but stick with me. I'm still going to win. A maiden giving birth wouldn't be much of a sign, would it? Because young girls of that day were giving birth all the time. If it was just a young girl of marrying age giving birth, that's not much of a sign. Which young girl of marrying age giving birth to a son? That's another evidence that it really kind of needs to mean virgin or else it's not much of a sign. Okay. If I said to you, a young girl's going to give birth next week, and that'll be your sign. That's like those preachers that say, oh, I just got a word from the Lord. Someone here is struggling with varicose veins. Well, I probably just hit half the room. You know what I'm saying? It's, it, 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 but the scripture said that a virgin would give birth. Oh, but here's the reason why. Here's the winner. Most importantly, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses the word what? Virgin in the Greek, which is very, very clear. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. There's no speculation as to which word Matthew chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 1, again, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when God 
inspired Matthew to write this, what word did God tell Matthew to use? And when he quoted from there, he quoted from Isaiah 7:14. So if God told Matthew to write, use the word virgin, then what is Isaiah 7:14's word? It's virgin. And that's why it's the miraculous sign to Judah that you're going to exist as a people, even though it may look like you're not going to exist as a people, even though Nebuchadnezzar in your near history is going to take you guys captive, even though it looks like you as a nation aren't going to exist, God's given you his sign. A virgin is going to give birth. Oh, by the way, as we know, not only did that virgin give birth to a son, that virgin was from the tribe of what? Judah. We've already seen that in our genealogy, haven't we? All right. Go to Luke chapter 2. Now, the ESV does not bring it out as clearly in its wording as I think the New King James does at times. But look closely at Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. In the ESV, it doesn't read like Mary was also needing to be registered, but the New King James brings it out real well. Mary also had to be registered because she also was from the house and lineage of David, as we've already seen in our genealogy. If it was only Joseph that had to be registered, he could have left Mary back home because she was real close to pregnancy or to delivery date. As some of you know, uh, when, when we were giving birth to our kids, and, and I did most of the work, but Becky takes a lot of the credit, but <laughs> she wasn't allowed to travel. She wasn't allowed to travel when she got to a certain point. Remember, a lot of you have been through that. If Mary was this close to giving birth, why did she travel? She could have just stayed home if Joseph was the only one that had to register. But Mary had to come because Mary was also of the house and lineage of David and, and needed to be registered as well. And that's why she's there. And so this virgin that God said was going to be the sign was from Judah. And Judah still existed at that time. But now Matthew tells us something else. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us that Joseph thought about breaking their engagement before Jesus was born. Luke doesn't bring that out in his account, but Matthew does. Matthew says that he thought about breaking the engagement and divorcing her because he didn't believe Mary's story about this miraculous conception. Before the angel come and visits Joseph, all Joseph had was Mary's word. Now Mary had the angel come to her, as we see in Luke's account, and tell her, look, God, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And the child in you is going to be called the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. Mary all of a sudden is pregnant. I'm sure she had to explain this to Joseph. And her explanation is, trust me, honey, nobody's touched me except God. And this child is from God. Joseph doesn't believe her. He's decided he's going to divorce her quietly. And we're going to come back to more about that in just a little bit. I'm going to ask you a question. Can you blame him? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Your girlfriend, your fiance, you've been remaining chaste. You thought she was remaining chaste. Now I was pregnant and tells you I didn't sleep with anybody. God put this baby in me. 
But he decides, I don't believe you. I'm going to divorce you. But there's something here in Matthew's account that I think will be valuable for a lot of us. Joseph's reaction was not in a fit of rage. He made no sudden and foolish decision. The scripture says he considered these things. Look at that again. In verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and then said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This child is from the Holy Spirit. What she said to you is the truth. I don't want you to miss this. His first reaction wasn't to put her to shame. Thank God, Joseph wasn't one of these people that flies off in a fit of rage. I hope none of you are married to someone like that. And if you are, don't you try to nag them into the right behavior. You start praying that God does a work in your husband's life. And I'm just going to shoot straight with you, men. You want, the, you, you want me to just be straight, straight with you? The Bible says God hates it when we react in anger and rage. The Bible says it's one of the evidences of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and following. It says the acts of the flesh are obvious, and it lists fornications and all this stuff and orgies, but it also says dissensions, factions, envy, strife, fits of rage. The Bible actually says that if a preacher is a man prone to fits of rage, he's disqualified from being a preacher. I've told both of my girls, look, I'd rather you never get married than be married to a guy that has fits of rage. I don't want you to live like that. And I want you to hear what the scripture says. Thank God Joseph wasn't one of those guys because he had every right to have Mary stoned instantly. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22, look at verses 23 and 24. If there is a betrothed virgin, Deuteronomy 22, 23, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she didn't cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. You all know the story in, in the Gospels of how they brought this woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus and said, the law says she should be stoned. This is where it comes from. Here's a betrothed virgin who's been in the city, and she didn't cry out, and now she's pregnant. What has the law said should happen to, to her? She should be taken immediately out and stoned. Joseph, if he was a man prone to fits of rage and flies off the handle and, you know, some people say, oh, I got a short fuse. That's nothing to be proud of. That's an evidence of a little bit of the spirit. Joseph could have had, in a fit of rage, dragged her at that moment out to be stoned. But because he wasn't someone who reacted in violent outbursts, he was better able to hear when God spoke to him. That's what it, how it describes Joseph. Because he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. His first reaction was not to put her to shame. Thank God for a man that was calm in a situation that he didn't understand, didn't 
believe her, but his first reaction was, I'm going to give grace. I'm going to give some mercy. I'm still going to break the engagement. But then the Bible says he was still considering these things. It's while he was considering these things, he loved her so much. It's a proof of his love for her. While he was considering these things, that's when the Holy Spirit sent an angel to come speak to him. Go with me to James chapter 1. Look at verses 19 through 26. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. The Bible says we should be Quick to listen, slow to speak. Why? Because man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Go to James chapter 3 and look at verses 7 through 18. It says, For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. You think you're going to, if you've got a problem in this area and you're going to try to do better, you're wasting your time. You can't stop it. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly and it's unspiritual. It's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the evidence again of the Spirit according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22? Love and joy and what? Peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Folks, the evidence of the Spirit being in our control of our lives is the fact that we don't fly off the handle when things don't go like we think. We don't get quickly angry and make rash decisions and stupid decisions in our anger. And thank God Joseph wasn't one of those kind of guys that flew off the handle. Because if he was, his first reaction would have been 
to have Mary, oh, and don't miss this, the Savior of the world, put to death. Because, oh, by the way, if he had had Mary stoned, who was inside of Mary? Now, I think because of my understanding of the scriptures and the sovereignty of God, that if Joseph had tried that, God would have protected Mary and the baby Jesus. Don't think that Joseph could have stopped it. God was going to get his stuff done. We see that when Herod himself tried to kill Jesus, God protected him. But at the same time, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What if he had tried to kill the Messiah? Because he was angry. But he wasn't that kind of a guy. Even though he felt he was right, even though he felt he had been lied to, even though he didn't understand and he had no information from God yet, his first reaction wasn't to be angry and to have vengeance. He didn't want to put her to shame. He, like you said, he loved her. Did he believe her? No. Did he understand? No. But his first reaction was calm. And that made him able to hear God. Folks, all of us need to understand, there might be ladies in here who've got a short fuse. That's not an evidence that the Spirit of God's in control in your life if you just fly off the handle. Go ahead. Should any significance be given to the fact that God, concerning the birth of His own Son, God, that He communicated through angels, yet in the Old Testament, He communicated Himself with Abraham, Noah. We're, we're going there. We're going there. Tonight, great question. I'm not sure I'm going to answer it fully according to how you worded it, but we're going down that road. So stick with me. If for some reason you don't feel it was fully answered, raise your hand again and I'll ignore you. All right. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I'll do my best to answer it. All right. Zach, I saw your hand as well. Uh, yeah. uh, James, where you quoted from, weren't there some of the circumcision knowing that he was preaching? And some believers? Yes. But what are you talking about? When Paul said, may they be emasculated, may they emasculate themselves? What are you, what are you talking about? Isn't James essentially preaching in a synagogue with some believers and a bunch of people who aren't? And he's poor? Actually, this is a letter. Actually, he's not preaching in a synagogue. This letter, the book of James, is just written to the church at that time. I thought it was to the 12 tribes dispersed. Yeah, which is scattered all around. He's not preaching in a synagogue somewhere. He's actually sending to the to the the believer, believing Christians out there amongst, amongst, that have been scattered all around. The Jews, if you will. So, All right, now, let me ask you a question. Are you so hard-headed that you can't hear when God speaks to you? <laughs> all right, if that's a, if it's a very common thing for us, which it is, I'm going to ask you to begin to ask God for His grace. Everything He has for us, He wants to give us, but it's to be received. And say, Lord, I don't want to be hard-headed. I don't want to be one of those people that flies off the handle. I want my first reaction to be peace. I want my first reaction to be I trust you and not that I fly off in my flesh. But Lord, I can't stop it. I don't want my tongue to do the damage that it does. But I can't stop it. And your word says no human being can tame it, but you can. And by your spirit, you are able to do that. Oh, Lord, I'm not thinking that anger is a sin. There's nothing wrong with being angry. I've been a little angry tonight as I've been sharing some of this because I, as a pastor over the years, have had to deal with the ramifications of people in churches claiming to be Christians but never letting the Spirit have control and the damage that's been done because of that. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but in your anger, don't sin. And in order for that to happen, you need to let the Spirit of God be in control of you before you do anything about your anger. And thank God Joseph was upset 
but he didn't fly off the handle. Now, as you're going to see later on in our study of, jo of Matthew, Joseph, listening to the word of God through angels, he actually becomes Jesus' protector, doesn't he? When he takes them to Egypt and then takes them up into Nazareth. Isn't that amazing how he goes from being the one who might have almost killed him himself to being his protector? That's such a cool, cool thing. So how did God get to Joseph? How did God get Joseph to realize that Mary was being truthful? You have it here in Matthew chapter 1. How? Through an angel. He sends an angel to him in a dream. The angel of the Lord came to speak to Joseph in a dream. Go back to chapter 1, look at verses 20 and 21, and then verse 24. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I love the fact that God even says, you get to name him. Oh, but by the way, here's the name. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Then we know he didn't have sex with her until after Jesus was born. All right. Now, this was a common occurrence for Joseph in the days surrounding Jesus's birth, since Joseph had some important decisions to make. Go to chapter two. Look at verse 13. We'll get into this more in our study of Matthew down the road, but I want you to see it in chapter two, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So again, he's had the angel come to him in a dream and tell him Mary didn't lie to you. That is from the Holy Spirit. He believed the angel, took Mary to be his wife. Then here in chapter 2, when Herod tries to kill him, the angel comes to him again in a dream and says, Look, Herod's about to try to kill him. I want you to get him down into Egypt and get him out of here. Uh, go to chapter 2, look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So here we see in verse 19, an angel again comes to him in a dream and tells him what to do next. Look at verse 22. But when he, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So here we see that this angel that comes to appear before uh, Joseph and tell him, look, Mary's telling you the truth. This child in her is from the Holy Spirit. An angel again comes to him in a dream, tells him to go to Egypt. When he's in Egypt, the angel says, hey, you can head back now because Herod's dead. But then he's afraid because of a relative being in charge. And an angel again tells him, here, what you do, head back to Nazareth. All being controlled by God. And as you're going to see when we get to that section of Matthew, it's because he was fulfilling scripture along the way. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. He'll be called a Nazarene and all these types of things. So it's a neat, neat thing we're going to get into in that time. But we see Joseph being instructed in what to do by an angel. Now, back to your question as to a significance between the fact that he had an angel do it when God himself would come and visit with Abraham I can't answer as to why, because God's God and I'm not, and he does things that we don't understand and his whys aren't always explained. Definitely, Abraham had a closer relationship at that time with God than Joseph did, of course. But at the same time, I'm going to show you something in the Bible that may surprise some of you. Now, as we go here tonight, I'm also going to caution you. Don't take this too far, because if what I show you tonight you take too far, it'll get you in trouble with God. You, you with me? You ready to hear it? 
but don't run. All right. We have something, first off, even better than Joseph had. We have Jesus himself living in us via the Holy Spirit. And he, too, will guide us. Go to John chapter 14. Look at verses 16 through 20. John chapter 14, starting in verse 16, Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. By the way, that word another in the Greek means another of the same kind. In other words, just like me. He'll give you another one just like me, a helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I love that. I'm going to come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Jump down to verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Chapter 16. Go to verse 12. And look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes and lives in you, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Don't miss that. What is this promise from Jesus about the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us? He's going to be with us forever, and he's another helper just like Jesus. Actually, it is Jesus himself. I'm going to be in you. The Holy Spirit's going to be in you, and he's going to guide you. He's going to teach you. He's going to remind you of everything, and he's even going to show you what's to come. He's going to lead you and guide you, just like the angel led Joseph and told him what to do and what was coming. Hey, Herod's going to try to kill him. You need to do this. Hey, it's okay to go back. But here's where I want you to go specifically. The angels came in dreams and let, guided him and directed him. We have the daily indwelling Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. But most of us don't know what it means to walk in the Spirit, being led of the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. We got something so much better than an angel. You don't have to wait until you sleep to get your instruction. You got Jesus within you, leading you and guiding you. And he said he would. In the book of James, doesn't it say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Oh, but when you ask, don't doubt. Believe that he'll show you. Because if you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea tossed. He'll, that person don't, he shouldn't believe he'll receive anything from the Lord. He wants us to believe that he'll show us. On top of that, and it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service, or our spiritual act of worship, and we didn't, don't, we don't uh, line ourselves up like the, like the world and we transform our mind. We're not conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're daily renewing our minds. Then we will be able to know what his will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will, he will, he will, he will direct your paths. Folks, Joseph had an angel come in dreams and talk to him. We've got God himself living within us. And he wants to lead us and guide us. But most of us have never learned how to listen to the Spirit. You say, well, Jim, how do you know when God's talking? That's another study for another time. But let me give you a little help. Have any of you ever heard Satan put a thought in your head? Then you know how to listen to the spiritual realm. 
God puts thoughts in your head as well. And you learn to take every thought captive. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, you learn how to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And you learn to recognize when he's talking and it lines up with the word. And you start practicing doing what you believe the spirit is leading you to do. It doesn't go against his word. I feel like he's telling me to do this. And when you take the baby steps, you learn to recognize it and you get gooder and gooder and gooder. I just did that to bug my wife. It makes her so frustrated when I use bad grammar. But, but I want to show you something else that may surprise you. Here's the thing that I want you not to run with. That I don't mind you running with. Run with that all you want. What I just shared with you about the Holy Spirit leading and guiding you. But uh, go to Acts chapter 26. I sorry, chapter 8, verse 26. <clears throat> Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 26, and we'll read verses 26 through 29. This is after Pentecost. This is after the Holy Spirit has come to indwell the believers. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So then, as you know the rest of the story, he goes over, leads him to faith in Christ. The, the guy says, here's water, he's being baptized. And then Philip is taken to Azotus. In this instance here, here's a New Testament believer, New Testament believer with the Holy Spirit indwelling them, who has the, an angel talk to him and the Holy Spirit. How about that? The Bible actually tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit in, in, in certain salvation. We know that angels came and ministered to Jesus. Some way and somehow, the angels still help us. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Because some of you will start praying to angels. There are too many, and I'm going to put it in quotes, quote-unquote Christians out there today who are worshiping angels. The book of Hebrews is very, very clear that we're not to do that. They're ministering servants. We don't fully understand some of us probably could spend the rest of the night telling stories about how we probably were visited by angels unawares. And I could tell you two or three myself that as I look back over my life, I realized that was an angel. At the time, I didn't fully understand it, but God sent an angel and he directed us. I'm going to tell you just one story. When, years ago, when I was pastor in Chicago, a group of us were wanting to, a group of the men were wanting to go to Promise Keepers, which was in D.C. that time. Some of you may remember Promise Keepers was having a million men from all over the country come and to be on the mall in Washington. And we decided we were going to get a group of guys from our church, and we rented a 15-passenger van, and we rounded up all these guys to go, and we drove from Chicago all the way to D.C. nonstop. We got there the night before the march on Washington there, and we had a hotel reserved, but we honestly, none of us knew how to get to D.C. and how to get to the mall. And this is before MapQuest. This is before GPS. We had, had no idea. So I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to know this stuff because I'm leading this group. The worship pastor's with me. We drop all the guys off at the hotel and we then go get gas in the van because we know we need to have it gassed up for tomorrow, but we don't know where we're going. And I turned to Mitch and I said, have you ever been to D.C.? He goes, no, you? No. You know where we're going? No, you? No. 
And we sat in the van there in the gas station and prayed, God, help us. we got a group of guys that are checking into the hotel right now, and they're expecting us to get them up at 6 tomorrow and take them into D.C., and we don't know where we're going. You got us this far. Could you please help us find where we're going? So we're pumping the gas now. We finished praying. We're pumping the gas. This lady gets out next to us in the gas station, and she says, are you, are you guys those promise keepers going to D.C.? We said, yeah. She goes, my husband wants to go. Is there room in your van for him to go with you tomorrow? And we we're like, sure. And we're thinking, you don't want him to go with us, lady. We don't know where we're going. She says, well, we're staying at that hotel right there. And I said, that's the same hotel we're in. She said, can, uh, can he just meet you in the lobby? When you leave, what time are you going tomorrow? And I said, well, six in the morning is when we're going to get up to get going. She said, he'll be there. I said, well, what's his name? She said, and his name was like John Brown, one of the most boring, kind of like Jim Johnson. You know, nothing to it. All right. So now we finished pumping the gas. I turned to Mitch and I said, now we really better know where we're going because now we got another guy and we're going to get him lost with us. So we get up that morning. We all meet in the lobby. Here's this guy. Are you John Brown? Yes, sir. Come with us. We invite him into the van with us. We're all kind of excited and noisy, and we get in the van, and we start driving, and I turn to John Brown and said, by the way, have you ever been to D.C.? He goes, oh, all the time. He said, we got friends there. I'm like, could you tell us where we're going because we really don't know where we're going. He said, no problem, no problem, and he showed us, and he took us to a train stop for the, the subway on the furthest outskirts of the train section. We parked for free. We got on the train, and by the next stop, it was packed with all these people trying to get into D.C. to the mall. And every stop, we were like, like this in the thing, and nobody could get on. But we were the first ones on the train, and so we were all on it. And we were singing praises to the Lord, and the whole tram was full of people, they're all Christians, and it was pretty cool. We get down into whatever Union Station or Central Station, whatever it's called. We don't know. We were lost. We get down in there, and we were like, where do we go from here? And John Brown says, follow me. So we all follow him and he takes us up this escalator and we get to the top and we're in the city now. And we said, where do we go? He says, look, you just go straight down this road, two blocks or three blocks, and you'll be right there. You can't miss it. And so I said, well, come on with us. He goes, no, my job is done. And I said, and I'm, again, the guys are already, I mean, the thongs of guys are going. My group's already taken off. And I, and, I, and I turn away from him and I go in a split second. I just, I got to convince him to come with us. And he was gone. How do we get back? I paid very close attention and I've been dropping breadcrumbs all the way back. Actually, it was real easy. We just got on that same train. It took us all the way out to where our car was. But here's the thing. I have no doubt that God sent an angel that day to protect us and to take care of us. God does use angels. Don't go praying to angels. Don't go seeking angels. You turn to Jesus. You have within you the living Holy Spirit of God who will lead you and guide you and direct you and show you what is to come. What have you got to worry about? He'll show you. If an angel came and directed Joseph before the indwelling Holy Spirit, don't you think God's going to guide you too? Then believe that he will. Oh, Jim, you're better at it than me. I couldn't. Oh, don't go down that road. The same Jesus that lives in me lives in you. Well, I haven't been to seminary. Let me tell you, seminary makes it hard for you to hear God. You might have been blessed that you didn't go. Folks, 
all of that tonight came from just that Christmas story that we've read a hundred times. And there's so much more. I didn't even get into his name will be called Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins and all the meat that's here. I can't wait to take you in our journey in chapter two about the wise men and show you, I think that the wise men didn't show up two years later like we've been taught. I think from putting the scripture together, I can show you that the wise men actually probably showed up eight days after Jesus was born and why, and the scripture will show it. There's so much more I can't wait to show you, but you're gonna have to come back next week for that. I love you. We'll see you then.